Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we say so long 2020 and look ahead to 2021. To do so, I'm joined by two of the smartest energy and environmental thinkers around, Sarah Ladislaw from the Center for Strategic and International Studies and Barry Rabe from the Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. I'll ask Sarah and Barry to reflect on the crazy year that was 2020. In particular, which developments in energy and environmental policy are likely to stay with us? And what will be some of the legacies of the Trump presidency? We'll also talk about what policy might look like under a Biden administration, which has laid out ambitious climate goals, but likely faces a challenging political landscape. Stay with us. Okay, Sarah Ladislaw from CSIS and Barry Rabe from the Ford School at the University of Michigan, two of the smartest people I know on energy and environmental topics. Thank you so much for joining us today uh, on this special year-end edition of Resources Radio. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thank you, Daniel. So we're going to skip the usual intros this week because both of you have been on the show before, uh, and so I'll refer listeners to previous episodes if you want Barry's background or Sarah's background and how they got into working on energy and environment, and we'll just dive in. So this year, we're going to look back at 2020, and then we're going to look forward uh, into what may be ahead for 2021. I want to let everybody know that we're recording this uh, on December 18th, so if there's anything really exciting that happens in the next couple of weeks, we might not talk about it on today's episode. Um, but let's start off looking back at 2020. So Sarah, can I ask you first, and then Barry, um, to just reflect on what has happened this year? Um, that's a big question. Obviously, 2020 <laughs> is a year that most of us will want to forget, at least in large part. Um, but we probably won't be able to forget it. It's, you know, it's it's an important year. So when you look back at 2020, what do you think will be the one or two most important developments in terms of energy and environment uh, that we won't be able to forget? Thanks, Daniel. And and thanks uh, for having me back. I think that's great. I'm, I am actually, though, having done this with you last year, I'm, I'm feeling a little trepidatious about this because we didn't see at all uh, what 2020 was going to be. And so I'm feeling like I've got to be really creative. Uh, but uh, but happy holidays and uh, happy end of the year to everybody. You know, I think there's two ways that I look at uh, 2020 and and the things that we won't forget. I mean, the 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 first and, and you know, perhaps um, most interesting piece to me as an analyst is we got to experience what a real genuine shock to the energy system looked like. Um, and there was just a myriad number of ways that that was super interesting. And so rather than kind of like go through all of them, I think for me, taking a look at what the oil market drop in consumption looked like, you know, it, it was not just a, you know, a, a you know 25 to 30% drop in consumption, like almost overnight in the second quarter of 2020, but it was, you know, precipitated by two of the largest oil suppliers in the market, you know, running up uh, their contributions to an oversupplied market already. It was just such an amazing thing to watch as the global oil industry, you know, came to a screeching halt and had to figure out like how you take this massive global supply chain and slow it down, right? Mm. You know, and, and just in all of the different intricacies of like thinking about what it means for the stability and the longevity of different parts of that market um, and, uh, and and the oil sector in particular, 
in the near term and in the longer term, it was just sort of endlessly fascinating and very different from most oil supply shocks that we've thought about over the course of you know my career and many other people's career. So I do think when I think back on 2020, this you know the the impact of a shock will be the thing that I spend uh, I spent a lot of time this year that I didn't expect to spend thinking about that issue. I think on a on a broader level, um, I would love to be able to say that it was the year where you know we got some definitive um, direction in terms of building back better and uh, and and really you know took the opportunity to to figure out how to use a shock like this and a global experience like a pandemic to uh, make positive contributions and maybe we can talk about this later to to the global climate challenge and a whole bunch of other issues. I'm still on the fence about whether that's actually going to be an outcome from this year, but um, but I but I do think if you kind of strip away a lot of the COVID um, parts of the 2020 dynamic, the other piece that I think 2020 will be remembered for is the year where net zero targets became uh, the price of entry for Mm. ambitious climate policy, right? I mean, both in the US context and the China context and the EU context, Japan, Korea, a number of other places. Whether we make good on those targets is a totally different question, but in the government space, in the private sector space, this year was the year that said, if it's not net zero by 2050, then it's not, uh, you know, a serious target. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a material change in where we've been in, in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Those are two great points and super important things that we'll definitely remember. Um, Barry, over to you. What, what do you think we won't be able to forget from 2020? So when I was listening to the two of you talk about these kinds of issues about a year ago, I was sort of thinking even then, like, how would I be looking toward the future? And if there was a kind of conventional wisdom that I bought into at that time, is that in elections in places like the United States, issues like energy, environment, climate are so important and so interesting. And yet we really would not expect them ever to get close to the very top of a political agenda in an election year. There are just too many competing considerations for that to happen. And yet if we look back on this election odyssey of 2020, including some of the early Democratic primaries, the extent to which these issues, particularly climate, surfaced, and we had all of these Democratic candidates, all of them trying to top one another in terms of what they would do, the range of policies and approaches, kind of racing to the top. Even the idea you'd have a special town hall meeting focused just on climate. Really amazing. And then the Democratic Party nominates someone who's more moderate. And yet, what does he do after a remarkable victory? He reaches back to some of his opponents who are calling for more ambitious goals and targets and embraces many of their positions, running completely contrary to what we expect a nominee to do. And so going into the late fall, especially when we were looking at the idea, remember, a Biden double-digit victory, a blowout victory for Democrats in the House and the Senate major shifts and changes in uh, governorships and state legislatures. We have an election where environment, energy, and climate was talked about a lot. A lot of new people came out to vote, some of whom were probably influenced by climate. But at the end of the day, we emerge with an election outcome that leaves us with this set of uncertainties about what really is the future direction especially at the federal level, but not just at the federal level, if we look at election results. And so we can say that 2020 shows that climate change is visible. It's more 
drawing more people in than ever before. But at the end of the day, does it deliver clear mandates or at least candidates and parties who align behind a specific agenda, especially for talking about moving legislation through through Congress or with broad buy-in across diverse states? Probably not. And so that, to me, is perhaps one of the bigger takeaways in this area and actually somewhat of a surprise given the fact that I really never expected to see an election, at least not in 2020, where these issues would figure so prominently for so many candidates. Yeah, that's so true. And and we're going to come back to that question of what might be feasible uh, in the new administration in a few minutes. Um, but before we do that, I, I want to ask, again, each of you, uh, to maybe pick a topic that uh, you think was really interesting uh, or a development that happened this year that you think is really interesting, but that maybe didn't get as much attention uh, as some of these really big picture issues that that we've just mentioned. So let's start with Barry this time. Um, Barry, can you tell us, uh, you know, one issue that, that's on your radar that maybe hasn't been on everyone else's? I think for me, although most of my work focuses on the United States, is to see how rapidly the policy agenda has moved forward outside the United States. Not that long ago, everyone was pointing fingers and looking at how the European Union was stumbling along with their emissions trading system. And yet, as we look at the reforms of their cap and trade system, the proposal for a green deal, green bonds, border adjustment issues, Europe has really kind of taken the lead on this. And even in our own backyard, if you go across the 49th parallel into Canada, a country which stumbled for decades on the climate file, has huge federalism divides over these issues, has found a way to put not only a climate policy, but a fairly robust carbon price moving toward $50 a ton in place across the country. And then lo and behold, the prime minister elected once, reelected one time, is now gambling everything in his reelection on the idea of taking that carbon price and more than tripling it by the end of the current decade and really making climate a fundamental cornerstone of public policy, federalism in, in Canada. And so for me, it's a reminder that in the U.S., we're so often focused on what the U.S. is doing, Congress and states, and this is all hugely important. But as we've been kind of dawdling, at least other parts of the world that we normally pay attention to and we trade a lot of goods with, uh, has been moving on and is elevating this issue, not just rhetorically, but in pretty substantive public policies. Absolutely. It, you know, my sense of that is it's been such a crazy year for so many reasons and the, the political turmoil that we've endured along with, of course, the economic and the, and the, the public health uh, crises that we've been living through. It's made it hard on people's attention spans to look outside of our own borders. But um, but you make a great point that there's so much important stuff happening uh, in these other jurisdictions. How about you, Sarah? What's a topic that you found really interesting that maybe hasn't been talked about quite as widely? Yeah, I mean, I think we've spent a lot of time, and I get asked certainly the most about what this year means for aspirant global targets as they relate to reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, right? So so are we going to be more on track or less on track for hitting some of our um, climate goals in that sense? I think relatively there's been less focus on the potential longer term impacts of the COVID-19 economic downturn and what that might mean for some of our other sustainable development goals, in particular energy poverty alleviation. I just think it hasn't been highlighted nearly to the degree 
um, that, uh, you know, that the other side of the ledger has. And, you know, when you look at either, you know, the goalkeepers report or um, the recent uh, ending energy poverty task force uh, has taken a look and, and saying, you know, we're, we were making a lot of progress on this goal of, uh, universal energy access and, and perhaps being able to move past that. But COVID-19 and the potential long-term economic downturn for many developing economies could actually um, set us back. And we need to be very careful about making sure that doesn't happen. And and so I think that's a really, you know, it's really important. It's really important to understand of all of the stimulus dollars that are going to be so key for um, making sure that developed economies and um, you know, and, and other economies around the world are able to to make new investments, pull out of a recessionary position. All of these things are so fundamental to the energy demand trajectory, which is just such a big part of understanding, you know, what the energy system is going to do over the next several years. Um, there's just so many countries out there that are deeply indebted. They don't have the same latitude. They're not going to, you know, of the you know upwards of beyond ten trillion dollars that. Um, you know, countries have spent to try and stabilize their economies, they're not going to have the options to do that. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think it's really important for us to think about how we double down and address that agenda in this new context and, um, and whether or not, you know, developed economies that are, you know, spending money on their own recovery are going to be able to and what is the best strategic way for them to spend that money in in developing country contexts to make sure that you know not only do these places get the health uh, and vaccine uh, attention that they need, but also w- that we just don't lose ground on these really important targets that we set uh, for ourselves for a reason. So I, I think that's something that I, I see relatively less attention on this year that I've been trying to pay a little bit more attention to. Yeah, that's that's all really well said and and so true and. You know, exacerbated or highlighted by the topic you just mentioned of vaccines, and you know, to what extent will vaccine distribution reach lower-income people, lower-income countries over time? It's going to be really important. So, one more question, looking back, and then we're going to look forward. Um, when we look back at the Trump administration, the last four years, um, there are, I think, a, a safe to say, a large number of critiques that we, each of us could probably offer uh, around energy and environmental policy. Um, but are there energy or environmental policies that have been developed under the administration uh, that you'd like to see continued, that you think were good ideas, um, that, that you hope the Biden administration will, will follow through with? Um, so, Sarah, let's start with you on this one. Yeah, Daniel, I particularly like this question because it allows me to like cheat and add another one of my <laughs> things that really changed in 2020 um, cool. uh, to the list and um, answering it. But, you know, I, I think 20, another thing 2020 has going for it is that it's the year that it became even more clear that countries are moving uh, closer to enacting industrial strategy as it relates not just to the energy sector, but different portions of its uh, economy. And this is an issue um, that we've spent a huge amount of time on this year, and it really seems to have solidified in new ways um, because of a lot of the things that happened in 2020. And here, you know, while it is very different, um, the manifestation of protectionism under the Trump administration, there are some things that the Trump administration has done that on the face of it are are, are good things 
to do. Um, they could probably be done better or they could be done more strategically, but but they do fit along the lines of this paradigm shift that we think that we see um, in terms of the role of government in the in in energy economies around the world. And and one of them is is the reconstitution of Exim and the creation of, uh, of of the DFC, which used to be OPEC. And and really this focus on thinking about export financing and um, how the U.S. looks to support the development and deployment of um, technologies, clean energy technologies, hopefully. Um, I, I think that was the right move. I think that that's a direction the U.S. is going to have to keep going in. I think a Biden administration will probably have a very different color and feel to how they utilize those tools. But but the idea that the United States uh, in a in, in the government in a in a more formalized way is going to have to think about how it competes in terms of the global deployment of technologies, the development of those technologies, I think is is right. Uh, and the Trump administration was right to focus attention on those things. Um, and it's probably something I would imagine a Biden administration would take forward. Right, for sure. So, um, and just to make sure our listeners uh, get the acronyms, XM, I imagine is referring to the Export-Import Bank? Yes, I'm sorry, yep. And, and then DFC? Uh, the Development Finance Corporation. So that used to be the Overseas Private Investment uh, corporation, they they've reconstituted it, renamed it to the Development Finance Corporation. Great, got it. I think we actually talked about that with Todd Moss on an episode. Yes. Several yeah, I'm, ago. I'm sure you did. Yep. Yeah, great. Okay, uh, Barry, how about you? What's uh, what, if any, uh, policies do you want to see uh, carried forward from the Trump years? Well, it's not a an exhaustive list, Daniel. So I'm not going to filibuster the rest of our time by going through this. But I'll use a couple of examples that do illustrate perhaps the ability of American government institutions over the last four years to work, at least at times. One of them is something that is passed through the Congress and signed into law by the president, something we haven't seen any president or Congress get together on for a long time. And this is the shoring up of the land and water conservation fund. Mm -hmm. um, the use of royalties from offshore energy production and putting that into a trust fund that is used to support land and water conservation. Um, this is a policy that has languished, has struggled, uncertainties about the royalties, uh, reluctance by various Congresses to fully engage in a spending program, possibly to make the deficit look a little smaller than it actually is. And we've actually had you know, Congress do this thing, legislation and a president signed it. There was the legislation in 2019 named after John Dingell, and the Great American Outdoors Act did pass last year, signed into law by the president with a word we talk about a lot, but more in historical terms that it really happened, bipartisan support in both legislative chambers. $900 million a year annually, a $12 billion fund for deferred National Park Service maintenance, not a massive lift. This is not the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act or a broad carbon bill. But, you know, in these times, it's, it's, it is something. I also would say that um, I would give the Trump administration reasonably high marks for its early implementation of the biggest environmental bill passed in the Obama administration, the Lautenberg Chemical Safety Act of mm. 2016. It had been since 1976, since the Toxic Substances Control Act was passed, a weak program, but one that was never able to be reauthorized. It was in the last gasp of the, the Obama years. And I would say that this is one that the uh, Trump EPA took seriously, 
began to follow performance measures and basic provisions and put all of the provisions of that legislation in place and set up a Biden administration to keep moving forward in this area of, of, of chemical safety. So those are, again, not landmark kinds of accomplishments, but at least they provided some reminder for me that even in these horribly contentious times, that the basic administrative functions of government can be pursued. And once in a while, it's possible to put something together that has environmental and energy relevance that involves the Congress of the United States with players from both chambers and both parties. Those are great points. It's so it's so nice to uh, celebrate the wins when they happen uh, because they've become so rare, uh, unfortunately, in, in recent years. Um, but thank you to both of you for, for all of those thoughts. Um, let's turn now to the future. And uh, as I mentioned, we're recording on December 18th. Um, there have just been uh, a slew of announcements from President-elect Biden about some of the major appointments in different cabinet-level agencies. So we've got uh, Governor Granholm uh, taking over at Department of Energy. We've got Representative Holland at Interior, Michael Regan, uh, North Carolinian, uh, which I always like, uh, at EPA. Um, really important roles for John Kerry, Gina McCarthy on climate policy, uh, and, and many other folks. So when you think about this team, you think about the administration, and you look to the year ahead, most likely with a divided Congress, what kind of progress do you think might be realistic uh, to expect in terms of environmental issues, particularly climate change? Um, and uh, just, you know, going back and forth, we'll, uh, we'll start with Barry again on this one. Well, as you note, listing all those names, this is a very, very experienced team. These are folks who have a lot of federal experience, state experience in some cases, both and so it's a very strong team, and it's reasonable to anticipate that this is an administration that will hit the ground running. Yeah. With that, there are some big questions and choices, and there is an executive path here and a legislative path. The executive path is obviously an intriguing one. A Biden administration will not be the first one to weigh and think about this. It has now been 30 years since the last Clean Air Act was passed. 33 years since clean water, presidents tend to get in and try to move the administrative levers as much as they can. Um, clearly, Team Biden is going to move in that direction, uh, going back to the Clean Air Act, but possibly lots of other new permutations, innovations, and twists, and really kind of push out the outer boundaries of executive power, much as Barack Obama did much as Donald Trump did, but probably in some new ways that are even hard to anticipate right now. Of course, that is promising and exciting because you don't you can get things done without going through Congress. On the other hand, there's always the fragility issue or the lack of durability. I've lost track of the number of policies at both the federal and state level that I've tracked over the years that really bore the embrace of a governor or president you work out the executive orders, you start the regulatory process, but four, 10 years later, there's not much there. And as we saw in the Obama administration, unless you know exactly what you want to do early, you can be confident that you can run the gamut through the courts. And a federal judiciary that will have over 230 new Trump appointees waiting for the next administration. And the fact that a great many of these proposals will immediately face challenges in the courts and resistance from a great number of states, 
that's a gauntlet that any administrative action has to weigh and consider. It means that executive action, as attractive as it is, is not necessarily a slam dunk, especially if we're talking about something that is enduring, sets clear market signals and policies that can last for decades and really guide us in the directions we need to go in terms of carbon and everything else. That then turns to the legislative side. And, uh, you know, I don't want to revisit the Great American Outdoors Act, but the whole question begins to emerge. What can one realistically expect of a Congress, at least over the next couple of years, really regardless in some respects of what happens in in Georgia? Uh, You know, here, clearly this is going to be difficult. But I do think we've even seen in the last few weeks with the movement for the Energy Innovation Bill and the role that Lisa McCoskey is playing in the Senate the possibility of a real phase-out of HFCs, if not in this legislative term, into the next one. And the fact that there will be uses of the reconciliation process and stimulus spending coming forward. And one thing that clearly we are going to see next year is the need and demand for more revenue to pump up the economy. That is going to include states. And I do tend to think that there will at least be some opportunities for congressional engagement relevant to climate and energy and environmental considerations that involve money, raising money through some kind of a tax mechanism, spending that money in in, in greener ways. And hopefully we bring both of these paths together, both the legislative and the executive, and develop something robust. But it's not going to be the kind of bold, dynamic legislative output that one might have expected based on some of the, uh, the, the earlier thoughts about where the Congress was going to go in the election. Absolutely. And um, I know you didn't really do this, but it, but it sounded like, Barry, you just predicted a carbon price. <laughs> um, I would never say never. <laughs> and there are possibilities and paths. But, you know, one of the powers that Congress clearly does have is tax and spend. And as we think of different kind of taxes, fees, other kinds of things, I do think at some point we will be revisiting that issue both because of the importance of the pricing role on carbon, but also because of the need for revenue long-term to pay for things. And I think we're seeing this pattern all over the world. Places that do carbon prices are doing it not just to put that proverbial price on carbon, but then also using that for for transition revenue for multiple purposes. So I I don't think near term, but I don't think it's off the the table entirely. Right. Great. Sarah, how about you? What do you uh, think is realistic in the months and years ahead? I, you know, I think a lot of what Barry said makes a, a lot of sense and, and agree with most of it. Um, I, I, I too, maybe starting where you ended, I too would never take a carbon price off the table. I'm also not putting it on the table anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> I mean, it makes so much sense. And trust me, I would be like the first person out of the gate to to welcome it should it happen. I just, I'm at much more fundamental levels of where the, you know, where partisan rancor will be at the federal level, period. I mean, it would be amazing uh, to have, you know, genuine interest in deficit reduction and all of those types of things. I don't really feel like that's where we're going to be. I think it's going to be a conversation about um, how cheap money really is and how much you can spend before you have to worry about getting your house in order. And I just don't, I, I see us, you know, arguing to the upside of what you can spend and not worry about it uh, in this in this new world uh, versus, you know, deciding we're going to do anything that would be painful for a politician to do, particularly, you know, given the fact that I think I, I do think we have to reflect on how divided the electorate really is. I mean, we're here we are, you know, um, uh, 
three weeks into December and uh, and we're just getting, you know, the Republican Party, uh, hopefully more of them uh, to agree to the fact that the election outcome is uh, is what it is. Right. So we're 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 in a difficult place and I'm hoping that there's going to be area for compromise uh, going forward, but that's why I'm um, I'm I'm not I'm, I'm not looking for any real breakthroughs uh, on things like carbon taxes. I, I think the the couple things that I would add to Barry's you know really great points are. I, you know, uh, there's so much about the Biden administration that is very similar to the Obama administration in, you know, the idea of coming in at a time of economic crisis, looking to stimulus for opportunity um, and having a plan that you came in with that you were sort of hoping would be the reality. And and it's not necessarily that. Right. So um, the, the so there's there's parts of that that make me kind of think, oh, well, this is a why won't this just be a story we've seen before. And I think the answer is because the real economy has changed. Hmm. And so to the extent that, you know, the executive branch starts to send signals in all sorts of ways about the primacy of climate thinking in regulatory policy making, not just in the normal places you would expect to see that language, but across the board, right? Um, you know, through like every economic policy made through the NEC under the leadership of Brian Deese, through, you know, Janet Yellen at the Treasury Department and thinking about, you know, all of the ways in which they intervene in the economy. Um, I just think it's going to be everywhere and it won't be everywhere in the pace that the Obama administration had to ramp up. Like Barry said, it's going to be what they knew at the end of the administration and how to implement all of that. And I just think the real economy will be so much more receptive to those signals because we've just made a lot of progress in terms of uh, the, you know, improving the cost of clean energy technologies and thinking about what the next phases are for integration. I would expect, I would be very surprised if this team wasn't super creative about how to create new avenues and vectors of change that are not necessarily just um, how do we, you know, re-implement regulatory policy that um, that has a new strategy and therefore might be more durable in the courts. I do expect them to do that. What I'm thinking about is like, what about looking to states and regions for, you know, complements of activity, you know, with public-private sector collaboration um, to create, you know, like industrial strategies for those regions, right? I mean, how do you how do you get willing um, counterparts at the state and regional and private sector level at the investor level? Um, to really mobilize strategies that the federal government on its own is going to be pretty hampered to do. And I see that that potential also existing on the international side, right? I mean, there's lots of different ways in which the U.S. can intervene in a, in a post-Paris environment to say, let's set some new goals. Let's, you know, let's try and uh, and, and, and revitalize some momentum here. And so I think it's going to, I have a lot of hope that it's going to actually be productive. What I don't have a lot of hope for is that it's going to be uh, clear and um, unmessy, right? So it's not until the, the administration will have to go ahead and put forward uh, some sort of NDC, probably through some sort of long-term target that we'll see how all of these activities might add up to something substantial. But it just won't look like, you know, what, what people people would hope to see is like, okay, well, here's here's exactly how we're going to meet these emissions reduction targets. And here's the policy signal that's long term. I just, I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's just going to be more of a, um, a, a scrappy game than that. And, um, but I do think that if you look at the kind of people that have been put into this team, they're smart enough, and they're empowered enough 
to try and be creative along those fronts. So I, I think those new vectors of activity that may not just be executive branch to the legislative branch negotiations um, are, are, are areas that I'm looking for kind of new approaches. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And, and the idea that there are going to be, you know, lots of different uh, arrows shooting at the same kind of target um, yeah. and how to piece those, I'm not really mixing metaphors here, but how to, you know, <laughs> put those puzzle pieces together to, to create an entire picture is going to be really interesting and important. Um, it actually reminds me of a metaphor I've been thinking about lately with um, uh, administrative action, uh, policy carried out through administrative action. It reminds me of uh, this rule they have now in European soccer called the virtual assistant referee. And stay with me for a second. Um, so the way that soccer works these days is you score a goal, or if a, if a player scores a goal, there's an automatic review period that uh, that gets carried out. So there's a, a video uh, referee watches replays of the goal and decides if it really was a goal or not, or if there was some infraction, minor infraction that took place beforehand. And so when a goal is scored, you really don't know if the goal is going to count. You sort of have to wait for it to go through this, uh, this arbitration period. Uh, and then and, you know, maybe a couple minutes after the goal is scored, you'll know if it's going to show up on the scoreboard or not. Uh, and that's kind of how I've been thinking about um, executive action on climate policy. Does that make any sense? I just want to say I'm so convinced that if we paid as much attention to policy as we do to like innovations in sports, we'd be set, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm all for it. Um, so uh, Sarah and Barry, I could ask you so many more questions uh, and, and learn so much, um, but we're we're at time. So I'm going to close us out with the same question that we ask all of our guests at the end of our shows to recommend something that's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. Sarah, last year you recommended The Wizard and the Prophet, which I quickly picked up and read and thoroughly enjoyed. So I'm really looking forward to your and Barry's recommendations. Um, Sarah, why don't you start us off? Yeah, so this will be a little bit different. I've read a lot of energy books. There's been just a, I would just say to everyone who I know and has sent me a book that they've written on energy this year, there's been a proliferation of them. They are all excellent. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go from a one that has surprised me, um, which is I, and, and just recently finished, was um, Pete Buttigieg's book, Trust. Hmm. And I was fascinated because there was a chapter in there on trust and climate change. And I, it was really, it really resonated with me because I'm um, a human being that's also an energy and climate wonk that, you know, is wondering what is going on in our society and how do we figure out how to uh, put it all back together again. And it was so interesting to see these questions of trust and, and trust in society and policymaking applied to the issue of climate change. So I won't give away what it says, but I do think um, it was it was refreshing. I mean, particularly we have a you know we have a podcast called Theories of Change. Sorry, I don't mean to podcast drop Daniel. Everybody has a podcast. They're all welcome. But we all have podcasts now, so that's just a new one of ours. And and it, but it's really about like how to think about climate change from very different perspectives. And this one about trust, you know, we I don't think we typically think about that, but it is. I think there was really interesting insights in that in that chapter in his book. So if you were inclined to read the book anyway, or you want to check it out, I I thought it was well worth. Uh, considering it from that vantage point. Great. Barry, how about you? Well, so for the record, I don't have a podcast to plug. <laughs> and Daniel, I keep thinking of you now in a, in a referee uniform, waving a flag to decide whether an executive action is credible or not. It's going to change the way I think about this area. But back to your question. Um, I've been reading much more outside an American context. And uh, one book in particular that's caught my attention by Pasha Madavi, professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, 
called Power Grab, Political Survival Through Extractive Resource Nationalization. So much of what we see in sort of external energy production, oil, petrostates, is so heavily focused from a lens of economics. But what, what Madhavi does is look at this in terms of politics, elections, and particularly in those governments around the world that have large oil and gas deposits, petrostates, and what this means in terms of their ability to function as political systems. And I found that very rich. Somewhat relatedly, but on a little bit of a different vein, a terrific book for those who want to understand what's going on with our neighbors in the North, Canada, is Douglas MacDonald from the University of Toronto, a book called Carbon Province, Hydro Province, where he really explains why energy, climate, environment is so hard in a big, sprawling federal system like Canada, and yet at times they can begin to get it right. And especially like about this book is it talks about federalism and the conditions under which different regions, Sarah, this goes back to your point about states and regionalism, which I think is so important in the U.S. and everywhere, a lot of other places, why that's so hard in Canada, but why at times it's been possible to pull things together two fantastic recommendations. I, I'm familiar with uh, both of those scholars' works and would just uh, second your uh, your comments, Barry. Well, um, it's been a crazy year, everybody. Uh, 2020, <laughs> goodness gracious. Uh, but this is a really wonderful way to close it out, I know for me uh, and hopefully for our listeners too. Uh, so Sarah and Barry, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your expertise with us. It's been great and really fun. Thank you and a happy and safe holiday to everybody. Thank you so much. Happy New Year. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.